0: Welcome to How Hard Can It Be, up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week, we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. Now, this week, my guest is Sarah Downey, principal at Accomplice, focused on venture investing in virtual and augmented reality and other frontier tech. Before getting into venture, she served as a director of marketing at AvuLine, a woman's reproductive health startup making fertility and pregnancy mobile apps, and manager of content and communications at Abean, a consumer online privacy startup. She received her JD from the University of Connecticut School of Law and a BA in psychology from Hamilton College. Sarah is pretty well known in VR circles as a contributing writer for UploadVR.com and has been published as a source in over 250 publications, including The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Forbes, The Economist, CNET, and CNN. She's a video gamer, weightlifter, and sci-fi fan, uh, and for me, her Twitter bio just nails it, 17-year-old boy interests in the guise of an adult female. For me, Sarah's one of the more fascinating characters on the Boston adventure scene these days. And what I most hoped to get out of our conversation was a better understanding of how a nice girl from Enfield, Connecticut, goes from being a lawyer to an inked up cosplaying video game fanatic helping to make sure Boston maintains its spot at the virtual reality grown-up table. I found the answer where she did, in the parking lot of a Barnes & Noble where she decided to stop living the life other people expected her to live and create a new one around the truth of who she was and what she loved to do. I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation. Uh, I know I did. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Here now is my conversation with Sarah Downey. All right. Well, hello, Sarah Downey. Hi. Here I am at the uh, Accomplice World headquarters. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys are killing it over here.
1: For sure. Thanks. Yeah, it's a it's a cool place to work.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you live near here, or how do you how do you get here?
1: I live in Southie. Yeah. Sometimes I drive. Sometimes at, we were just talking about this before we started recording, but sometimes I'll intentionally like Uber one way and then walk home so that I can catch Pokemon. Yeah. Which is a, it's an important thing. For an adult. To it's do. key. No, it's
0: really, it's, it's urgent. We're going to talk in our second segment about <laughs> your affinity. Some might say obsession with uh, VR, but, uh, <laughs> so I want to get to know you. So uh, the other thing that we said before we got started here is, is I encountered you through your Instagram when you were at dragon con and, uh, and my immediate thought was who the fuck is this person? <laughs> um, where did you grow up? Let's, let's start there.
1: I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut in the suburbs. And, um, Not a whole lot was going on there, but it wasn't like the total middle of nowhere. Like, I went to undergrad in upstate New York, and that's the total middle of nowhere. But, like, where'd you go to school? Uh, Hamilton for undergrad. Oh, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, it's really I went nice to Cornell place. and
0: I actually dated a girl at Hamilton. Oh, nice. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we used to race against, I did track when I was in college. We used to race against Cornell and they were D1 and we were D3, which makes no sense because they would just cream us. Right. So I have fond memories of just getting stomped.
0: It made no sense for you, maybe. Yeah. It was validating for us. For
1: them, they are like, they're. yeah Yeah. we're awesome at this running thing you were
0: uh, you were like a a sprinter or 400 or what did you run uh
1: 800 800 so the most painful horrible tough race I still have nightmares that like my coach is there and she's like what are you doing you don't even have your spikes on you gotta you gotta go you gotta run in four minutes and I'm like oh shit (laughs) you're right yeah and then I wake up sweating
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's telling um (laughs) So uh, siblings, uh, you know, what, where were you in the birth order?
1: Uh, I was the oldest right. of two. My brother is four and a half years younger.
0: What did your parents do?
1: My dad is an insurance, well, until recently, he just retired. He was 36 years in the same job. Um, he was a sales salesman at uh, Liberty Mutual Insurance. And my grandpa did the same thing. Right. So I come from a line of salespeople. Right. And my mom, uh, she stayed home with us, uh, and now she volunteers full-time at a cat shelter.
0: Right. You yeah. got a lot of cats growing up?
1: A lot of animals. Right. I, like, my first job was at a pet store when I was 16. Isn't that a cruel place? It kind of does show you some harsh shit. Like, there's a lot of stuff that you see involving, like, death and feces. Right. <laughs> um, but... I had like rats growing up as pets and uh, lizards, and I would like hatch frogs. I liked things that were kind of weird and gross growing up. I almost like decided that if something was gross and scary, that I wanted to become friends with it, and therefore it wouldn't be scary anymore, like bats or spiders or like horror generally. Like I just really liked dark shit. Like I read every Stephen King book before I was in 8th grade. Right. Which I think explains a lot.
0: But it's not because you were you were sort of like had a very high tolerance for that. It's because you it was a sort of a way of processing those
1: things. Right? Yeah, like I was always attracted to things that were weird and scary, but then I had this desire to understand them so they wouldn't be as weird or scary. Like I almost wanted to have an internal Rolodex of anything that could freak me out so yeah. that when I encounter it, it doesn't. I remember the book It by Stephen King That's is... That's the clown one, right? Insanely... It is, and the movie really fixates on the clown, And there, but in the clown is the main evil dude, but yeah. there was a lot of shit in that book right. that was really dark. And like, you know, I guess... If I have a kid someday, I'll probably let them read everything that I read, but like maybe maybe coach them a little bit around yeah. some, what some of that stuff means.
0: For me it was The Stand.
1: Yeah, I reread that when I was in Peru like 2 summers ago. That shit. It's like dark. Do you remember that that scene where they're going through the tunnel and it's pitch dark and he's just like t- like Freaky. touching corpses. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that that, stays that, with that, you. that scene. I,
0: I, I, that that scene. And it went on for like chapters there in the yeah. fucking tunnel. You're um, like, "Oh,
1: don't go in there, man." Yeah, no. He had to go in there. Yeah. yeah. He's a hero. Oh,
0: no, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. So you get out of there and uh and you go to uh, you go to Hamilton, a beautiful mm-hmm. school. Yep. Did you kind of know what you wanted to do? You know, we we were, um, you, were you running away from something or to something, do you think?
1: When I was a little kid, I wanted to be a veterinarian because I loved animals. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just wasn't, like, I wasn't squeamish about animals or bugs or anything like that. And then the pet store job, et cetera. But then, like, I don't know. I, I started as a pre-med for that purpose. And then I realized that I liked knowing about biology. But I didn't actually like the sort of, like, lab part of biology. I found it really boring. And, and anyway, so I sort of, like, I landed on psychology, because I was, always a, I was always a reader and a writer. So I thought English was kind of too much bullshit and biology was way too scientific and concrete. And so psychology was kind of like the science of bullshit, like right. people's bullshit. Right. And that was a good space for me to land.
0: I see that confluence now. Yeah. Psychologists might might object.
1: but <laughs> uh, It's like, well, why is somebody doing this thing that looks super irrational? Right. There's actually patterns behind that. I got
0: it. And so when you graduated, did you have the intention of like you were going to work for a while and then go to school or or by the the time you graduated, it changed?
1: Well, I actually, so I wanted to be a therapist, but um, kind of like towards the end of, in the middle of my junior year, two of my friends had developed eating disorders and one of them was anorexic and the other was bulimic. And I wanted to help them, but my response to wanting to help them was like, okay, here's the solution. Like yeah. you, you fucking eat something and you stop throwing up. Yeah. And I was like, hmm, maybe I'm, not, right. maybe I'm not as empathetic as I should be. No. Like I want to solve the problem. And I'm, I've always been like the person who people come to for advice, but my advice is not like touchy feely. It's like, you fucking do this thing. Right. I just, I, and I want to help. I just don't, I started thinking about the business model of psychology and how you're almost oh. disincentivized to solve someone's problem. Cause once you do, they, they're done right? You're like, you kind of just want to talk about it forever. And then they keep coming, paying you. And I didn't have the patience for that. So at the, kind of at the last minute, I was like, eh, I'll go to law school. Cause then, you know, people are, you're billing by the hour. And so you're solving problems, but you're on the clock and people are very aware of how expensive you are. And so it seemed like a, almost like a more direct route to solve people's problems.
0: I had a similar epiphany in that I wasn't the most creative person, nor was I the most analytical but Mm -hmm. no one as creative was as analytical and no one as analytical was as creative and so I that got me that kind of advertising. Yeah Um, I did
1: my undergrad thesis in psychology on advertising.
0: Yeah oh really? Yep. What uh what was your what was your hypothesis?
1: So I used an eye tracker which it's insane how far they've come even this was in 2007 and uh, I, I would have to like get right in people's faces and calibrate this machine with this, l- this lens that would like focus a laser off of their cornea and I would have to try to find the, the corneal reflection in order to run these tests and I basically just like I mocked up a bunch of fake Yellow Pages ads like online Yellow Pages ads for like liquor stores and I just used different colors and kept everything the same the whole idea was just to see like how do people respond better to different types of colors no. um, turns out they do
0: which colors are they the most responsive to
1: so people notice like this is just shit everybody who's in advertising knows this but you know like red is the most noticeable but it's also it also has negative connotations like people stop in their tracks when there's like a red light for a good reason um you know, biologically evolutionarily, if you don't respond to the color of blood, like you don't Sure you don't continue it's to important. live. It's an important safety. <laughs> safety <laughs> but then protocol. like people liked different people liked blues. So they notice blues less when compared to red, but they have better associations with the things that are in blue tones.
0: Right. They say in advertising we say blue is a trust color. It is. And it evokes trust and and uh Green is calm, and I always looked at orange as a buying color. Yep. So both Actifio and G twenty are orange as the core. Yeah. It's also kind of vaguely Italian, and little known fact, it was Frank Sinatra's favorite color. It was. Yeah, it cheered him up when he was in a when he was in a bad mood. He would wear an orange tie, and it would brighten his mood. Hmm. Didn't know that, did you? No. You're welcome.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
0: All right. So the law. Yeah. So, did you go right to law school, uh, and uh, where did you go to school?
1: I I applied to only one school, which was the University of Connecticut School of Law, because right. I was from Connecticut and I had really no plan at all. I was just like, if I can't do this in state, I'm not going to be able to afford this, so I'm only going to apply in state.
0: Did you live at home, or did you? you yeah. Did, yeah. And um, you got through, was it weird going back home after being gone? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you have a good experience or a bad experience there? Law school?
1: I would say mixed. I don't know if I would do it again or if I would do it again the same way going straight from undergrad. Like I had no life experience at all. I just kind of showed up and expected this to be college round two. And it was not, <laughs> Right. it was a lot of like very self-important people, which of course, anybody who knows anything about the law will look at the, that cohort and say, of course, sure. of course they're going to be like that. Um, but And there were some great people that I met there that I'm still friends with now, but I felt like the majority of people were really kind of obsessed with themselves and obsessed with success, and, but not outside-the-box thinkers at all. Everybody wanted to go work at a big firm. Right. Like, everybody wanted to eventually be partner at that firm. And I just didn't.
0: <laughs> were you, um, like, intense? I mean, were you academically... Are you a diligent person in that way, or were you yeah. kind of coasting through it?
1: No, I I was diligent. I mean, I think it's, I wasn't as diligent the first year because this, there's this whole academic hazing thing in law school where, you know, there's 70 to 100 people in a giant room, and the professor will call on you by last name suddenly in the middle of nowhere and be like, yeah. Miss Downey, what are what is the the, the facts of this case? B
0: school's like that too.
1: And it's like to me that's just like bullshit. <laughs> it's like, you're just trying to scare me. Like I'm paying you. I'm I'm the client here. Like and the fact that everybody has to take the same classes after coming from somewhere like Hamilton where I could kind of design my own curriculum and it was amazing. And right. I just felt like a lot of it was crap. And I don't like when you can't differentiate yourself I just felt like I was going through the motion but you know second and third year it got a lot better because you could pick more like I did a lot of externships where I actually was like at the DA's office or actually working at a copyright clinic actual useful stuff it was like the very you know like the legally blonde kind of like that kind of stuff that I didn't love So
0: if it wasn't to go to a big firm, like after you graduate, you get your shiny diploma, you're ready to leave the house, I'm sure. What did you do?
1: During the time that I was in law school, I started this podcast and, you know, taught myself how to make websites and audio edit and figure out the whole RSS thing, which is so much easier now than it was. And and that was like a creative outlet while I was in law school, which felt pretty stifling creatively. I also, you know, I was doing... I got a certificate in intellectual property while I was at law school, so I was always into, like, the tech side of things. And then when I graduated, I had this really shitty period where I, I got married to a guy that I basically knew I was going to divorce. Um, re- like, I shouldn't have gotten married. I I, I had I was like, oh, this is cold feet. This is, like, that thing that happens. Um, but turns out I just shouldn't have done it. Um, then my grandpa died, which was like the first person I, who's ever been close to me to die. And since then, actually, I'm pretty lucky in that regard. And then I was going out for this job and I was really close to getting, it, it was between me and this other woman and she got it, but it was like a six month process and it would have been awesome. It kind of had to do with this like podcasting thing I was doing. So all of those things happened at once. And I, and I was like, all right, I'm getting a divorce I'm living in Enfield, which is, like, the armpit of, like, western Massachusetts, northern Connecticut. Yeah. And then I was, like, I was, like, I remember this vividly, right? (laughs) This is, like, we're going to some dark places, right? Sorry, podcast (laughs) listeners. But I remember being in the parking lot of a Barnes & Noble in Enfield, Connecticut, just, like, crying in the car. Like, I'm $90,000 in debt. I have this degree that I don't want to use. All this shit is happening. And... And I was just was like, "All right, you gotta get your shit together. Go in there, get a coffee, get on the Wi-Fi, and like look on Craigslist in Boston, because for whatever reason, I felt like nothing was happening in Connecticut. It's the insurance capital of the world. Hartford is depressing. Sexy. Um, but then there's like New York, and then there's Boston. They're kind of equidistant, and to me, Boston just seemed like livable and more friendly. So that's so I went in. That's what I did." I found a posting in the legal services section for a startup. And it was like a secular religious moment. I read this job description. I didn't even know what a startup was. And it was like it was speaking to me. And I just wrote this like bomb cover letter and I got the job.
0: So I'm a big believer that your life is the product of your choices. And so you made a set of choices in your life that led you to the Barnes & Noble parking (laughs) lot. And, um... What do you think changed? How were you different after versus before?
1: I think the biggest difference was I didn't care about anything except doing something I was interested in. Like I didn't want to go work at a law firm because that was the thing I was supposed to do. That's the thing you're supposed to do. I never wanted to do it. Yeah. I never even really wanted to go to law school. It was just like, you can't go wrong if you're a doctor or a lawyer, right? Like, right. But everything is changing and that's not the case anymore. And I, was never even, I didn't even care about that anyway. I just figured I could create a career out of that that would be interesting and helpful and like that would help people in a straightforward way. Then I was just like, fuck it. I'm going to go work at a company doing something like edgy and interesting that has to do with tech.
0: In retrospect, is that why you got married too? Yeah. It was the next thing to do.
1: Well, it was like I met the guy on OKCupid, which is still around, but not. I mean, it's no Tinder, right? But he was like on paper or like on OKCupid. He was my highest match, and he was like ten miles away from where I lived in Connecticut. Right. So, like on paper, that was the thing I should do. It was like law school, but but it just wasn't right in person. Right.
0: So it sounds like you sort of broke the bond of other people's expectation. Yeah. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. I mean, Uh, I still care to a degree what people think, you know, like I hear my parents think and, you know, Uh, generally. You're not
0: a, you're not a a psychotic. Yeah. Um, But I
1: also in many ways give zero fucks. Like I just don't, I know I'm not everybody's cup of tea and uh, I don't care. Like I much prefer people who are like, like there's this great Oscar Wilde quote that people aren't good or evil, they're charming or tedious. Right. And I just think I I have no time for anybody except the charming ones. And if you don't find me charming, then like there's, there's billions of people on the planet.
0: So Startup Life, what was that company?
1: Uh, It was called Abine. Right. And it was an online consumer privacy company. The first thing that they did was this this browser extension that would block web trackers.
0: So was that what you expected? I mean was was it
1: I didn't know I didn't know what I expected other than like th- this company is doing something on the bleeding edge of tech that I have found personally relevant. Like they needed somebody to start a blog, for example. And while I was doing this podcast I had gotten some stalkers through it, so I kind of in my own life had to reverse engineer, okay, how did these people find me? What information is out there about me? What can I do about it? Right. So I had, I had been blogging and been figuring this stuff out on my own, and then this privacy company was like, we need you to start this blog, and we're also going to offer this product called Delete Me that's going to, you're going to be the product, and you're going to go delete people from the internet, because you've got a law degree. So. Godspeed, figure it out. <laughs> but I loved that it was like these. It was three guys and me and a dog, and they were, we were like sitting on exercise balls above the tavern in the square in Central Square. And like for my interview, I showed up in a fucking Brooks Brothers pinstripe suit, and it was just so inappropriate. And looking back, it was like I that day was the last time I ever wore a suit. Right. I was like fuck law school like th- this room above this bar with these dudes where I'm just like figuring crap out on the fly is a hundred percent what I should be doing with my life. Right.
0: One of my dearly held theories is that over the long run all the pain in life and in business is caused by distance from the truth yep. of who you are and a, a relationship a situation. You're living that like that. That sort of helps me understand kind of what you're about. Right. (laughs) It seems like that that's really important to you. And you're you're you know, you know, Johnny Cash has this great line and happiness I've known proves that it's right. That idea that you can follow your bliss to a better life. I
1: totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, I think like one of the one of the first and most important things relating to that learning that happened to me was when I was in high school. I kind of was like friends with the cool girls, like mean girls, but not to that level, like all through the same group of people, like middle school, high school. And I secretly was a big video gamer. And that was what I loved to do. But it wasn't like I could share that with like one of those girls who was the coolest one. But I just felt like I had to fill my quota of hanging out with these awful girls. And it was just like the group that I was in. And because I was an athlete and like we, we, I don't know, I don't know why. It was like the, the path that I was put on. But then I met these guys who were like dorky and they played video games and they were really smart. And I was just like, man, I love hanging out with these guys. And I completely just switched over. I was like, these are my people and they're still my best friends. Like they, I just saw some of them last week. And I think it was at that point where I were... I was like, you know what, I am I am like a 17-year-old boy who plays video games, which is like my Twitter bio, yeah. and like, fuck it. I just don't care. This is what makes me happy, and these are the people who make me happy.
0: That's your tribe. Yeah. Yeah. For the benefit of anyone who aspires to do this, how do you go from being, you know, on an exercise ball on a startup to being, <laughs> a, you know, the big bad world of EC? How did that happen?
1: No, never intentionally for yeah. me. I... So I, I was at Abine for about six months, and all of a sudden, like, we raised $5.2 million. I had no idea what VC was. I'd never even heard of it. It was just like, suddenly these dudes who were all white and were all bald showed up, and we had <laughs> millions of dollars. And I was like, yay! <laughs> I don't know what happened. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, we got, our CEO gave us this talk, you know things are going to be different, right? You, you got to not wear sweatpants every day and we, we're going to move. We're going to hire all these people. We're going to bring in some senior people. Like that was my first experience with VC. Uh, and it was Atlas at the time and general catalyst co-led our that round, which is the series a. And um, I actually never really knew or met Jeff for a long time. I just like would see Atlas on emails and stuff and not really know. And that kind of informs how I think about portfolio companies now. Like, I don't assume that they know who we are or what we do right. at all. Or, like, that we, we are particularly special or interesting to anybody.
0: Right. Um, does it matter?
1: I think it matters if you're a VC who actually provides value to companies. But if you don't, then I don't think it matters. I mean, so the how- most important thing is you're giving this company money to do the thing it wants to do. And that's really it. Which kind
0: of VC does a aspire to be?
1: So we are in the trenches with those people. And I think there's... I see VCs as coming from two major areas. There's like the finance, investment, banking type people. And then there's the operators, right? And that's those are very broad. Um, like I see sometimes tech journalists will get into VC. I put them more in like the operator category as well. Um, but I think... You know, if you're a VC, everybody has money. That's what you have. You either have more of it or less of it. There's no, like, variation, right? right. So everybody says they're entrepreneur-friendly and they're founder-friendly. But really, like, you talk to the founders, and there's only a couple people who truly are. Acambos is one of those. And, you know, like, Ryan is one of those. Ryan Moore, Jeff Wagner, Like, they just, they are. And I've seen that, and that's, I wouldn't want to do VC in any other way.
0: How do you find ways to add value in an organization?
1: I think it's around what you personally have done and are good at. Like I'm not I'm not going to come in and claim to help you with your engineering process, right? And if I was trying to it goes back to what we were talking about before. Like do what you're good at, be yourself. The the places where you're uncomfortable and unhelpful are is when there's a gap between what you really offer and what you're trying to pretend you offer. Right. So for me, my background is in marketing product and content so like i'm not gonna like you know i often help our companies with uh pr launches or funding announcements because i've done that and i can do that and especially at our stage where they're early they might not even have a body who does that you know so i almost come in and and, like think of myself as an employee of like i'm working for the founders and ceo yeah and we're gonna do this project
0: i think it's important to have that mentality that you're not coming in from above. You're not the high overlord of whatever. And I think that as VCs are more successful, frankly, they lose that humility. Oh, for Uh, sure.
1: Like you're like, come, I'm going to sit on my throne. You come in and pitch me like the shark tank mentality of like, bring me the idea. Like the idea is the thing that matters. That's why like the first thing that I did when I was at accomplice was run this uh, crowdsourcing campaign to come up with our name And we gave a $50,000 investment away to... I submitted. You did? Yeah. You probably had one of the better ones (laughs) because I found a pattern. I mean, people who are in startups and do advertising and marketing had far and away the best. Yeah. Like there really is a skill there. Um, But, you know, Accomplice wasn't even in the top five after our narrowed down process. But I made the play to put it back in there because I thought it's a perfect description of like, we're in the background you as the the founder are doing the big thing that people are talking about. Like you're doing the crime, we're just kind of helping you. Like we're just giving you the money, and you use us when you want to. But it's it's your show.
0: I was I was a little pissed. You guys didn't pick my name. I, not, well, do I, you remember? What I, you it know, was. I don't remember. I'll, I'll find out. I could actually.
1: You. I have um, those Excel files. But
0: uh, I when I heard the name, I was like, I, I like you know, it's great. It implies alignment. Hierarchy in favor of the entrepreneur, and it's got a little dirt on it, you know.
1: I that's perfect. That's a you, and, perfect story. And you like summary. that? that yep. sort of, yeah. Yeah. Yep.
0: yeah. It was. It was on brand.
1: Yes. Um,
0: like you know, I uh, so uh, kudos to you for that. Um, <laughs> when you look out, this is a sort of almost a, a strange question, but like, wh- what do you want to do when you grow up? I mean, like, do you... I very
1: much feel like I'm growing up. Yeah. Like, I still feel like. A child. I, I'm like, I put on LinkedIn, I think, like, I'm learning how to VC right now. Right. You know, I feel like I have a lot that I need to fill in. And in so much of this industry is, like, confidence, going out there and pretending that you know everything. I don't fucking know everything. Yeah. I know bits and pieces about things that I care a lot about or that I've done. And I, I'm always going to be learning, you know. So... Um, I, w- I would like to be a partner at a firm, you know, and I would like to be focusing on things I care about, like frontier tech and working with people I really like so it doesn't feel like a job. Um, it's gonna take a while until I feel like I'm at the place where I can do that. You know, right now I am I sit in on a lot of stuff with the partners here and I observe a bunch of boards and, and do a ton of different things, but um, like if Jeff got up in a board meeting and was like you just take over I'm not like I'm not doing that yet <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know
0: but it sounds like you're living your truth yeah that feels good
1: totally this is the best job in the world
0: All right, so I'm just coming off of my first VR experience. I feel, uh, God, I was fucking cool. Right?
1: Um,
0: so I went through like the this um, like water area and then killed some shit. That was very, like, ready to, pumped up. Like, yeah,
1: it's um, kind of amazing. I get the
0: appeal now, I, I get it. So, so this is an area that you're particularly um, passionate about. Did it start in, in the gaming world?
1: I always played video games and read sci-fi. And those are the two, those two things are, are in common for most people that I meet at AR and VR meetups. Like we all have read the same books. We've played a lot of the same games. We've seen the same movies like The Matrix, right? Like there's right. Ready Player One is a book that uh, is kind of like the Bible in, in VR communities. And the, the it's going to actually Steven Spielberg is making the movie right now. So that's going to be out pretty soon. And the the premise for that, which isn't going to ruin anything for anybody because this happens within the first three pages, is that the guy, like the Bill Gates kind of dude who invents the metaverse, which is like the virtual reality universe that we're all plugged into, he dies with no heirs, so he leaves Easter eggs throughout the universe. And the only way that you could find them is if you're obsessed with 80s culture like he was. Um, So... It would be like, imagine traveling through, like, an infinite number of digital universes to find tiny, tiny little Easter eggs, and if you do, you inherit all this this guy's money. Wow. So, it's a really fun book, and I would recommend, like, everybody reads it. I'll go get it. Um, It's also very fast and easy, and there's so much nostalgia. But, like, so, I always just love stuff like that, like, Snow Crash. I love Neil Stevenson. I've read, like, everything that he's written. Um, And he's an advisor for Magic Leap now, which is, like... The biggest augmented reality. I do
0: have this recurring um, last Starfighter fantasy.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, like for me, like the, that 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 um, I'm somehow chosen as a representative, and and each each planet has one of those, and we're gonna have to fight each other, and you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, I actually um, saw
1: that for the first time like a year
0: ago. Oh, I fucking I love that. Movie.
1: Yeah.
0: That was the first digital like you know. Um, the first time they had created the ships digitally and whatever, but but something about that story, yeah. I remember seeing that and um, and just thinking like, wow, like like they you know the writer had the same thought and that was like
1: that's oh. actually the reason I saw that was because they referenced so much in Ready Player One. Yeah, you're gonna love that.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm I'm <laughs> gonna get that this this weekend.
1: <laughs> nice. Did you have you heard of Mass Effect? No, what's that? So this is a it's a game trilogy that. Um, that EA made Well Bioware is a developer But now EA owns them And it's like a role playing game Set in space And you're this character And all the decisions that you make are, are They affect the outcome of the story right. So you can go like very light side Or very dark side And you have all the tons and tons of, of outcomes And it's like It's like reading a space opera But you're playing it So there's visuals like this, we're at my desk right now, and there's an action figure from it right there. I that that I'll, dude.
0: I'll check that out. <laughs> I I did play the um, I played the the Halo games.
1: And it, it kind of has um, the same feel, like futuristic. Like there's a lot of like silver spaceship yeah. curves and. I like
0: that. I like yeah. that, and that was the beginning and the end for me because I got so absorbed in it, mm-hmm. and it's just not room in my life for me to you know for me to for me to do it um but but i was like it was like intense like i I really was you're there and you're fighting for your life with all the slimy shit you know yeah um
1: yeah i oh yeah they have some zombie type stuff in those games
0: and then what's that other bio there's like bioshock yeah yeah
1: that yeah that i also played that bioshock infinite was particularly good and that's not underwater. But a lot of Bioshock is like weird, sketchy, 1950s, underwater, parallel universe. Yeah.
0: Freaky. Yeah. All right. So, so you know, catch us up. So that's sort of where this started. And that's the, the, that level of video game is something most people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. How does that go into a... What's the difference between that and, you know, VR and AR?
1: Well, people have been trying to build vr for decades you know there's there's people who've been working in virtual reality for decades and the consensus is that right now is actually the inflection point where this stuff is taking off and that's because the price of the hardware required to do it is dropping uh the development capabilities that people need are actually pretty out there open source easy enough to use where most people can can pick it up Um, so we're still a couple years away from this stuff being pretty mainstream. Although the launch of PlayStation VR this year was pretty big for that. Right. They they still didn't sell as many units as they wanted to. I think it's about like a million or something. But it actually like the the PSVR was around three hundred, which means you have to own a PlayStation Four already. But it's still more approachable than like what what you were just using is the HTC Vive. That alone is eight hundred dollars. And you need Just a high-end PC to run. And it. you got to
0: run on something. Wow.
1: So and then and then you're you're buying the games, which are really they're more like demos. There's no killer app yet for VR. You play stuff. It's it's cool. Like the stuff that you did. It's cool. But like you can't do that for ten hours. Right. You're not going to stand on the bottom of the ocean looking at a whale for ten hours. Right. So like.
0: Have to be a really good looking whale.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's like. There's these little bites that, that people have right now in VR, but there's not like, there's usability challenges around, like when, you, when you're walking around in the vibe like you were doing, you'll approach a real life wall. And in virtual reality, you see it as this sort of like semi-transparent grid. Yeah. Um, but that's a problem, right? It's like, how do you, how do you move around? Do you, you use teleportation, which is a way a lot of people try to solve it? Do you do you use a controller to do that? Do you use it through eye tracking? Um, do we get omnidirectional treadmills? Seems like a really expensive solution. You know, there's just a lot that people are figuring out right now. Right. Like, how do you browse and like, how do you enter a password in VR? It's all so like clunky and weird, and the headset being on there is this whole new thing. It's just this like, this is the next paradigm of computing, and right now people are figuring out all these questions so I feel like you know for me reading about this stuff and playing it like what a time to be alive like I'm alive right at the point that this is hitting that exponential growth right and I'm you know it's got a couple years until it really gets there and like I feel like I have a couple years until I really get there too as a a venture capitalist so we're like I feel like this connection to this industry like we're on the same path together
0: right so, so stay in the present with me a little bit longer while, while you know, while we, we catch up. So, you know, Oculus, you know, huge, outsized success, and what are they? What is Facebook going to do with that, and when?
1: I have to imagine they want to own social and virtual reality, and they have already shown that some of the things that they're working on in that area, like you'll have an avatar. It's a virtual reality representation of you, and it can show your emotions and things that you're experiencing. My gut is that people don't necessarily like what's really cool about virtual reality is you could be anyone. Why would you want to be yourself? You know, like if you're playing Halo, do you want to be Mike Troiano playing Halo, or do you want to be Master Chief? Like, right, right. I want to be Master Chief. I'm sure that's not the case for everybody, but like, right. you know, I think. Th- Things like Second Life are a great example of, you know, people People can be animals. They can be different genders. They can be different ages. Very, it, It's pretty infrequent that you pick an avatar that looks exactly like you. Right. And I think Facebook is betting on, you know, the fact that they know everything there is to know about the real you. And that, therefore, they're going to control and own the digital you in virtual reality. Because that'll be super valuable, right? You know, there's a lot of data... That you can get out of a headset that's on someone's face that sees exactly what they're looking at and when for how long that you can't get on a mobile phone or or a desktop browser. Right. So I think that's what they're really banking on people carrying their identities into the virtual world, but I don't think people want to do that.
0: Have you ever seen someone do like a 360 camera of an environment? And Mm -hmm. um, the first one I think that really sort of caught hold was someone on the top of a skyscraper somewhere and and you could literally, like, on your phone, like, you're looking around this environment, but it's a representation of the real world. And my, I, I guess I inferred from that that their intent was to you, you enable you to sort of, you know, I'm still thinking in a sort of flat screen kind of place. But it sounds like you're, you're they think it's, it's a much longer, longer term, bigger bet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I'm going to interact with, like, the people I knew in high school yep. as a virtual persona or a virtual version of mm-hmm. me that... That is, that is thinner and has more hair the kind of thing. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, like, in Second Life, I was I was a Morgan Petrono. Um, and he was a very different kind of person. Yeah. Uh,
1: they're uh, betting on it being you. Yeah. And that you're going to buy things. And you're going to read articles. And you're going to watch videos. And you're going to hang out as you. Right. And right. that they're going to own and control that virtual hangout environment. But yeah, I mean, they already support 360 videos, right? right. They're just... They want to own the the Hangout, right? Right. Which is going to be huge for things like conference calls and dating and all kinds of applications. Um, But even in those, like sometimes you you don't want to go on a first date if it like let's say you could use virtual reality as a first date, like a blind date. Uh, Do you want your date necessarily knowing everything about you that's on Facebook? Probably not.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, I think that our Facebook. Personas are, you know, they're an idealized representation of our actual selves. Not.
1: Yeah, that's uh, why Facebook is so boring.
0: Yeah, we're already sort of one level abstracted, and now, so we're just gonna make that representation more experiential, I guess. Yeah. I,
1: mean.
0: right. I would I, the, the, prefer
1: one where, like, we don't know who these people are, but you can be yourself just without, like, you can, it'd be like a giant digital masquerade where everybody, feels safe to do what they want to do and say what they want to say because it's not identifiable. Right. That could also be a total clusterfuck of, like, bullying and harassment, all kinds of shit, but, like, right. like any other medium, virtual reality could be used for good or for evil, and there's going to have to be all kinds of, of things in place around, like, enforcing that.
0: Are you a Westworld person? Yeah. You you know, big time. As you were saying, like, people go there to, you know, kill and fuck, you know. It's a... Um, yeah, I was just I was thinking that, like, wow, you know.
1: That's what's uh, so cool about virtual reality. Yeah. It's not like, none of those people are like going in there and clinging to who they are in right. real life. That's not what, it's, it's like what Ford says. It's like people come here to see who they can be. Right. You don't want to be yourself. Right.
0: Right, but it does, I think what's, you know, one of the interesting threads there is that last little monologue from Ford as a storyteller, you know, because I do believe that. I do believe in... Stories that reveal the truth of something, a fiction that, that reveals the truth. And that, that's ennobling in some ways. But it was almost like in that finale, it, you, know, you learn what's happened to William, which I kind of figured out about halfway through yeah. that. Um, Run but, it. but it's not all Run good. You get in touch with the baser parts of yourself, and that's, that's a bad thing, right? Yeah. Um, so that you could see this going, going wrong.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, Yeah. There's going to be virtual reality dependencies. Like, people will die because of how much time they spend (laughs) in these headsets. But at the same time... Hooked up to a
0: glucose strip, you know, for three weeks. Yeah, uh, people are going to get obsessed.
1: And it's going to change so much. And when when you throw augmented reality in there, too, that, to me, is infinitely bigger.
0: All right, so what's the difference for the uninformed between virtual reality and augmented reality.
1: Virtual reality is completely immersive. So you put the headset on, you're at the bottom of the ocean. Right. You're standing in your office, you're at the bottom of the ocean. Augmented reality is a digital layer on top of the real world. Pokemon. Exactly. Like, yeah. Pokemon Go is like the the shittiest, like, mainstream version of, of augmented reality where we all agree, like, this is AR, but it's kind of shitty. like. The, the thing that we all want is, like, you're wearing a pair of glasses, and AR really moves your phone to the front of your face. Right. Like, anything, directions, contacts, texting, interacting with an app, anything that you do on your phone can be done in AR and a headset right in front of you. So the thinking is it's going to take you out of the world less because you're going to be just facing the direction you would normally be facing. Like. Right. You're gonna be on your bike, and you'll see like take a right with an arrow, like just just above the world, and that's gonna be less dangerous than looking down at your phone.
0: I I, I was listening to a um a podcast that Biz Stone was on, and he was talking about his his view is that that we will be the last, like you know, we, in, even in five years, we'll look back at staring at these at these like small screens in our hands, walking around as. Like really primitive stuff. That, oh,
1: a hundred percent.
0: That will we will absolutely move past this this era like much more quickly than people people think. Yeah,
1: we're gonna have first we're gonna have kind of awkward headsets.
0: Kind like, of a Google Glassy kind of a thing.
1: Well, like the uh, Hololens is it's out there. The dev kit is available. I've used it. It's not something you would like rock walking around. Right. It's like it's pretty distracting. It has a small field of view. Magic Leap claims they're working on a pair of glasses that are pretty normal glasses, but the information just came out with an article that trashed that and said it's actually, well, they're, the processing unit they're using is the size of a refrigerator, so they're, really, they're being super secretive about it, but they've raised $1.4 billion to wow. do this. So, you know, there's Meta is making headsets, um, Daiquiri... But the it's we're just not there yet. We we in order for this to really take off, it needs to be like you're putting on a pretty normal pair of glasses.
0: And is there from a like put on put on your VC hat rather than your friend hat your fan hat? <clears throat> is there a, a bigger near term opportunity in AR than VR?
1: Bigger near term in VR because it's here and it's happening and consumer headsets are available and they're right. getting cheaper and cheaper. There's a lot around content, especially that that. Like, people are dying for good content on virtual reality. Right. Somebody, like, Unity is the, it's an open source developer platform for, for creating VR experiences. And they have a Unity store where you can sell assets and things that you make. And, like, man, that would have been a good thing to be in <laughs> as a VR investor. Right, right. Um, for the short term, VR is going to have a lot more activity. For the long term, AR. Like, analysts project by 2020 that AR will be a $90 billion industry and VR will be 30
0: Right. The, um, you know, the VR stuff that's accessible to most people, you know, at the very low end, like, Cardboard, you know, mm-hmm. and and um, or and then, daydream.
1: I'm holding a daydream headset yeah. right now. How,
0: how, how, how is that? It's is pretty it pretty like,
1: amazing? Is it really? Yeah, and like,
0: it works with uh, is there a specific brand of phone you gotta Yeah, pull?
1: so I have a Google Pixel, um, which is oh, an like? amazing phone, by the way. Yeah,
0: I got a, I got, I'm not like an LG guy. I like, I like the LG Oh, 5. well, if
1: you're already on Android, like, yeah. get the Pixel, I'm a it's Android the person. Best. yeah, all right, I'll, I'll make the change. Um, it's it's like you just take your phone, you go into daydream mode. It just creates two little, like, eye-shaped viewing modules. You put the whole phone in the headset, put this strap on it, and then um, you use this remote that's like kind of looks like an Apple TV remote. And um, it's, it's not as good as the Vive, which you just tried, but it's, it's not that far away, which is insane. Wow. It's really, really cool. What's it called again? The Daydream.
0: The Daydream. Google
1: Daydream. So this would be a competitor to like the Samsung gear. Um, but it's way beyond the, the, the cardboard. Cardboard's basically like three sixty videos. Right. This actually tracks like are you looking up, down, left, right? Um, oh. it's it's pretty amazing. Right.
0: So so we're there on the on the on this stuff. Yeah, this is thing this is a big seventy-five bucks. Cri- will, will this be a big Christmas for
1: that stuff? Or
0: or I uh, think so. Yeah.
1: I went home over Thanksgiving and I, I put my entire family in this, including my grandma who was like shrieking and laughing and it was the funniest, coolest thing. Because she she was like a fantastic beast experience based on the movie where right, right. you have a magic wand and you're making potions for these beasts and she was flipping shit. Because it's like your, your brain interprets these things as real, even though you know they're not. It's coming in through your visual system as though it's there.
0: Right. You know, for me, the early days of any of these it's it's hard going because for me it's it's always the story and i feel like in a way you get all you get so much focus on the effect and what you can do and it feels like it takes a couple of years before somebody really builds a narrative mm-hmm. that you know leverages it in a smart way and and that is emotionally engaging you know
1: yeah we're, like a, that's what we need yeah we have a lot of these disparate games that feel more like demos than yeah. true long experiences and the, all the like UI elements aren't really figured out yet, and it's just kind of like all of these pieces happening separately, and things are going to come together.
0: Right. Do you think it will be a? It'll arrive in a flash because somebody kind of figures out the right cocktail of the narrative experience and the hardware and all that, and then it's just boom, um, hockey stick. Or do you think we're gonna? It's going to be a gradual thing for the next. You know, decade, and then we're sort of boiling the frog a little bit at a time.
1: I think it will be hockey stick like upward exponential growth within the next two years, three years, three years. Really? Yeah. Like we're right, we're right at that curve. We're about to go straight up. Wow. And that curve has been happening for decades. Right. You know, like people have gotten hyped about this previously and thought this is it. Like, no, this this really is it. Right Hmm. now, we might be like. We might get in the trough of disillusionment later on. There might be some like bumps in the road, but like this is this is where we're headed. It feels like we
0: we've been through that. I mean, I feel like (laughs) Second Life is kind of the peak of high expectations, and then we did have a sort of
1: yeah. And it is a virtual reality. It's just it's not one that involves hardware that depicts it as such. You know, any game where you're immersed, like. Mass Effect or Zelda or any of those things are immersive. It's just that you don't have the, the visual, the headset to to put you in it the same way.
0: So you, you're you're plugged into this world. You're you're meeting these people. And what are you? What, what's the criteria you're you're using to figure out? Okay, these guys are a player and 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 worth supporting in some way versus these guys are wannabes and and not gonna have what it takes. What are you looking for?
1: For our stage, which is really early it's not super early like pre-seed we'll usually do seed in series a's smallest check we're writing these days is around a million um and at that stage it's like people and idea so so much of it is like are these people exceptional do they really live and breathe this thing and aren't just doing this because The market indicates this is gonna be big. Like fuck that. It has to be something you truly love. Because you're gonna be the one selling this to people you're hiring, to journalists, to users. Like you have to believe that. So, you know, smart people who truly believe this, and then from an from an investing standpoint, we look at things that are middleware, software platforms, things that connect other things. Like if you're making a game, I'm probably gonna play it, but I'm not gonna invest in it. Cause games are even more of a hit-based industry than right. venture itself. Yeah, yeah. You're already taking huge risks. Right. The other thing is, it has to be potentially enormous. Like it has to be, it has to be a company that could be worth a billion dollars. Right. It can't be, you know, we're doing, um, I don't know, like we're doing some little thing that's niche that might be cool for a couple of people. Right.
0: To get a, to get a venture scale return. Yeah. You know, it's a hit driven business. Most people don't realize what powers ventures yeah. home runs. It's not the, it has to
1: be in, the, in, yeah. in order for that to work. It has to be a massive home run. Right. You it can't be like, you know, it would be a good exit to sell a company for $200 million, but that's not, that doesn't make a fund. Right. You need a bunch of those to make a fund. Um, so like, um, you know like one company that i that i have been talking to that's like very early in boston they're sort of positioning themselves as like the the operating system for mobile augmented reality which i think mobile ar is going to be the thing that bridges us between now and like us wearing the headsets in the future and there there is like a several year period between those things so like that's interesting to me because that's a platform that lets other game developers just use their technology and not reinvent the wheel when it comes to the computer vision and the tracking and the positioning that they're involved in powering AR on a phone.
0: Right. Like why would you want
1: to do all that? Right. So it's like AR as a mobile AR as a service. So that's super interesting. It's, it's like stuff like that. Got okay. it. Um, but, you know, or hardware is super risky and there's a lot of hardware coming out around VR. Like how do you help people experience touch Um you know, those are like the body
0: suits that have pressure and Mm -hmm. um
1: there's one called Tesla suit that was on Kickstarter and they're they're claiming that they can make you feel different like temperature ranges and pressure, or um there's another called Dexmo that's this glove, and it has these like things on the back part of your hand of your fingers, so that let's say you go to grab like a coffee mug in virtual reality it will stop your fingers from being able to bend anymore at the point that you're at the circumference of the cup. So rather than like give you an actual cup to grab, which they can't, it just prevents your movement, which has the same effect, right? I mean, there's tons of those. There's like Smell-O-Vision for VR. There's, there's one um, that we are invested in through Boston Syndicates that's really cool using... They basically scan your brainwaves to allow you to do things in VR with your mind. Like, which is, just, like, think about that for a second. That right. is fucking crazy.
0: Do we get to a place where this is a chip implanted and, and that's I high. think we
1: do. Because there's, there's either, you either have, like, an insane high-end virtual reality room where you have an omnidirectional treadmill and a haptic suit and wind machines and, you know, 360 speakers and all this shit, which is basically like an arcade in your house. Or you have a direct neural input. Right. And that one seems a lot more simple. Right. That would be that's like matrix though. Yeah. That that's all kinds of that's all kinds of scary. Yeah. We could be in a simulation right now. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Let's say that the potential for that exists, like, you know, someone can do I'm sure someone's close to being able to do that like what would it take for you to be willing to do it?
1: What? The neural Someone incident? to
0: put something, you know, I would
1: do it today. <laughs> I, please a cup of coffee
0: and a please like a I, would, I would
1: be like yeah. a straight up Cylon today from Battlestar Galactic. I don't even I don't even mean like the hot like Trisha Helfer one. Yeah. I would be like a straight up toaster right now yeah if yeah. someone was like, we got all the things that make you you we put them in the cloud. it's like on AWS. We'll just download it into this robot body. I'd be like today let's do that. I don't need any of this. I can do do pull-ups better as
0: a robot anyway. What a character. I would much rather see Sarah as the new number six than as a toaster-style Cylon, but uh, we'll just have to see what the future holds. All right, so How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Be sure and subscribe to How Hard Can It Be. Tell your friends about it. Share it broadly. Uh, Rate us on iTunes if you have a sec. I really appreciate it. And we will see you next week.